I'm for Gene Shepard, humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for set up in there, huh? All right. Get ready with it now. We're going to use it. Hooray. Uh, oh, no. Into each life. Something must fall. What the hell was it, then? Into each life. Some. Hmm. It's right on the tip of my head there. Right on the very tip of my point. Uh, into each life. Some... Uh, son of a gun. I knew what that was. It's, it's one of those things I know. That, you know if you ask me... Uh, uh, what time? Uh, what time the 8:27 IRT arrives? I could tell you right away. 9:48. I mean, <laughs> sure, you've never taken the IRT, then you don't know that. <laughs> what time the uh, the 5:12 to Darien leaves? Well, I'd say about 6:15. Let me see here. Uh, into each life, some something must fall. But would you please give me a cheer and a uh, and a blast of uh, of applause and uh, accompanying music for man's imperfect mind, please? You mind if I get out my uh, my axe here?
the matter? <laughs> well, you know, you just can't. There's no substitute in the end, friends, for talent. And uh, you can do it all you want. You can holler. Hey, uh, by the way, would you please, uh, if you will, uh, excuse me, Carl, Carl, hey, Carl, uh, not that one. Reset in there, if you will, one of my great solos, Semper Fidelis. It's on that same cut, the same, uh, same disc in there. And uh, <laughs> you like that? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I, I, I'll have to, I'll have to uh, explain something here to you. Uh, as an ex-bass uh, player, and uh, by the way, among all the instruments in the orchestra and the band, the one that requires one of the most accurate ears is the bass. requires a great ear, and it requires a great sense of beat, and it also requires total humility. Because it's a difficult instrument to play, uh, the, the sousaphone. Not just because it, it doesn't take any... By the way, most people think it takes a lot of wind to play it. Not at all. In fact, it takes, uh, among the wind instruments, the least amount of wind. Don't confuse the size with the amount of pressure it takes. In fact, you know what instrument takes the most wind to play, really, among the brass instruments? Would be the peck horn, or the French horn, you probably call it. It's called the peck horn among orchestra people. And it takes a fantastic amount of uh, of uh, wind, uh, not really wind, but it takes a very carefully controlled embouchure. Well, you know what is an embouchure? Well, uh, okay, that's that little hallway that you come into in those elegant salons. That's the embouchure where you check your hat and all. However, it takes a very, deep, very finely controlled embouchure to play a peck horn. Uh, on the other hand, another instrument takes a lot of wind. Uh, it would be. I would say basically the trumpet. A trumpet is a mean instrument. It tears hell out of your lips. It just blows you right off the... Now, playing a, uh, a sousaphone or a tuba, two different instruments, by the way, which may confuse most people who tend to think of anything as a bass horn, but the tuba is the instrument that is upright. It is not carried in parades. A sousaphone is, however, carried in parades. That's the instrument that is carried over the shoulder. They're basically the same instrument. However, they do have slightly different sound. Uh, there's a slightly different uh, quality to them. Uh, the sousaphone, this is a personal observation, is easier in some ways to play. It has a larger circumference of tubing and so on. Uh, curiously enough, the smaller uprights get tough. I mean, you, you start playing the E-flat upright. That's a mean little mother and uh, tough to play. And, and it's the quality of getting the sound. That's where the difficulty of playing this instrument comes in. Getting the proper sound, the, getting the phrasing is a better way to put it. And, uh, and so uh, as, a, uh, as a sousaphone player, at one point, I did a specialty with this big concert band that I was with. I used to uh, perform on the kazoo with the orchestra, with the band, in concert. Sure. Uh, not as a funny, funny ha-ha, but as a, an, an illustration to show how one small instrument can alter the whole sound of a great band <laughs> or a great musical art. You know, they say that if you play, that this is why you don't hear many... Uh, classical 
compositions, when I say classical, serious music compositions, not necessarily classical, because classical, by the way, means a certain period in time. Uh, but it, you don't hear many composers use a saxophone in the orchestra. Now, you know why this is so? Well, the saxophone has a curious quality to it, and it was invented, incidentally, by a Frenchman, and his name was Saxe, S-A-X-E, uh, and it is an instrument that overrides and overshadows and, in fact, completely colors the entire sound of the orchestra, which means that if you write a, a, a piece of music, uh, let's say a uh, let's say an orchestral suite, for argument's sake, and you write into it a, a part for a uh, saxophone, let's say uh, an alto or a tenor sax, as a legitimate instrument. It comes out <laughs> when you actually play it as if you have an alto sax or a tenor sax accompanied by an orchestra. Well, now that's not what you're looking for. You want it to be part of the orchestra, but it just doesn't. It just over. It overshadows an orchestra completely when it's used. That's why uh, when they, when, you know, when people begin to talk about jazz bands, when the word jazz came in in the 1900s, early 1900s, it, they were primarily referring to a a sound of, of of an orchestra that had with it a saxophone, which gave it a whole different coloration. It was a different sound. I don't know why I got into this. This is whole totally a field of uh, of playing the kazoo. But a kazoo will do the same thing. If you take a kazoo uh, in in the middle of a two hundred piece orchestra, everybody hears the kazoo. You can have four four guys playing uh, string basses in the bag. There, you have uh, seventeen trombones. On what do you hear? The kazoo. Okay. Now I'll give you an example of that. Let's let's go. No no no. I don't want the kid. It's okay. Let's go. It's got to be all the way up, Carl. an illustration, no matter what you do with the orchestra, you're going to hear that damn kazoo. So, uh, it's a very cutting, <laughs> it's a very cutting sound. Now, uh, another instrument that's very similar to that, uh, in the way of uh, overriding uh, an orchestra, in a, in a way, is uh, the guitar. Believe it or not, a guitar is a very simple little instrument, you know, and it doesn't seem to have much guts, really. That a guitar played properly in the middle of a band or orchestra 
will sound, you'll, you sit in the back, 5,000 rows back, and say, that guitar. <laughs> you know, you don't even know that all the sousaphones and the tubas and everybody else is blowing their, their you know, their dinghies out, and uh, you don't hear them. Do you want to hear some more of that, uh, that band? Now, this, by the way, happens to be a great band record. Let's just hear a little more of it, Carl. You don't have to reset it. Just let it go wherever it is. Just start the machine, and wherever it is, it'll sound good, okay? Now, listen to that section work. Now, that section work. Now, I'll give you a tip on playing the kazoo if you're interested in playing this instrument. First of all, listen. Always listen. Because <laughs> the kazoo is an instrument that's necessarily dependent on the ear. Not the mouth, the ear. Reset that, Carl, please. Uh, while I'm talking here, you reset it. That that uh, y- if you play if you play your kazoo with, uh, make sure you're consistent to begin with. Don't play the melody because the melody in the case, let's say in the case of this piece of music, is played at alternate times by various instruments. Not one instrument plays the whole melody. So you may find the trumpets at one point are playing the melody. The next moment you hear the bass section is playing the melody. You know, this is the bass section. So you have to pick what section you're going to play. If you play them all, you're not playing anything. Would you please, uh, if you will, uh, listen carefully to me. You'll find over there, you'll find a thing, that uh, record that uh, Little Lee brought in. Okay. If you will look carefully at it, you will find a uh, a thing that is entitled frogs. Bog. Okay. You're a very literal lady. You know that. All right, uh, put it on there. I'll show you what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> and before, and while Carl's in there flailing around with the machines, I will. Uh, I would like to salute the, for those of you who uh, wonder what's happening out there in the country. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, nothing happens out there." You know, anything beyond uh, Manhattan, there's just no excitement. Well, I have a little item here, which I think ultimately is going to go into is going to our vast file of trivia here so that when people of future times know what our society was really like, okay? It's a wedding announcement. Now, wedding announcements could be very dull, right? You know, the description of what uh, the bride wore and the description of the uh, last company that the bridegroom was fired from. And uh, the description of the bride's father and the bride's mother, and a little brief description that the uh, that the uh, groom's father just uh, left Leavenworth, and uh, various things like that. You know, it's a very dull. All right, here, listen to this one. I just like to. I will not tell you what town it is. It doesn't matter. No, I nor will I give you the real name. Okay. All right. Uh, let's take this name. We'll, we'll just pick a name, huh? Okay. Marsha Johnson, daughter of Mrs. George Johnson of Chicago, Illinois, and Paul Watanabe, son of Dr. and Mrs. Ralph Watanabe of Floral Park, were married on Saturday at the church. 
Given in marriage by her father, the bride wore a white gauze dress with crochet trim and a white satin sash. She carried a bouquet of white and yellow daisies and wore a crown of baby's breath. Up to that point, we're still with it, right? Classic, huh? Okay, it gets better. The couple had no attendance except their dog, Walker, who accompanied them throughout the ceremony as best dog. A uh, cocktail hour and reception was held at the home of the bridegroom's parents. After the ceremony, relatives and friends from Illinois, Connecticut, and Vermont attended, as well as another dog, Fred, and the family duck, Albert. Uh, Mr. Watanabe is a graduate of the University of Illinois and works uh, in the office of the paper here in town. Uh, Mr. Watanabe attended Middlebury College in Vermont and earned a graduate degree from Indiana University. Oh, we're very proud. He's one of our fellow alumni, and uh, I hope he and the best dog there got along fine. I wonder if the best dog, uh, you know, get you passed the ring up to him and did all that stuff. And there's a picture, incidentally, on the paper, in the paper of the ceremony. It's a very touching ceremony. You see the uh, a beautiful picture. It's a classic picture. You see the, the reverend in the church and the lady wearing her white uh, bridal gown. And there's the man standing there, Mr. Watanabe, standing there looking very official. And below them is the, is the, uh, the best dog. Okay. Uh, that's right. It's sponsored by Alpo. We're on our way, friends. We're on our way. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, have a note here. I've, uh, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the uh, the world of the kazoo here. Just have to do it, friends. Sometimes you just give them. You, you always. By the way, if you're a kazoo player, always leave them wanting more. You know the trouble with most amateur kazoo players is that they inflict the instrument on people. Uh, this is not, uh, believe me, Isaac Stern does not uh, run around every party he goes playing his fiddle, laughing and yelling and eating peanuts, I can tell you that. He does not. So if you want to have your instrument respected, respect the instrument. Use it properly. Use it only when it is called for. Okay? This is even more true of the Jews' harp. Because, by the way, very few people can play the Jews' harp, although everybody who owns one believes he can. I'm continually getting letters from guys who say, I can play the Jews' harp, put it in you! And then when you hear one of these poor sad saps, he goes plunk, 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 you know, he stands there with a dumb look. It sounds like he has a mouth of A&W root beer as he's trying to play. All right, now, I, I, I uh, received a note here from uh, somebody who says, Shepard, uh, would you please... Uh, Tell us uh, here in in, uh, in your own words what the is your most what weather what time of year do you enjoy the most? It's a good question. Nobody asks. Uh, no, not summer. Mm -mm. Nobody asks Johnny Carson good stuff like that. No, no. You know, I'll tell you. A lot depends on what happened to you when you were a kid. It really does. Almost everything in our life is colored by what happened to us as children. People tend to think of children as a separate race. They are not. And I have to take issue with Rex Reed, who recently did a review of a Truffaut film, and he talked about children as if he were talking about puppies or dogs, as if it's a separate... No, Rex, children are us. 
and we are children. If children are resilient, so are people. Rex. <laughs> because the child is the father of the man. May I be filled filled with fantastic cliches here. However, it is true that we were all children and are all still children in one way or another. Now, people who confuse children with childhood, this is the bad problem. In other words, if you're still living the life of childhood and you're 22, you're in real trouble. Real trouble. However, to expunge the child from you is an impossibility. That's like expunging ten years of your life. You cannot. You cannot expunge any years of your life. They're always with you. And they will affect you. And I'll tell you, when I was a, talking about the weather... See, I, I, I was into sports. Now, I don't mean sports in the sense of uh, skiing. That's, uh, that's not really the, the, the thing that I would call sport. It's a pastime. Sport, I mean sports. Competitive. And I played football. Now, most guys I knew did. I mean, you know, the, it, you tend to get friends around you who are like you. And so I played football all through high school. Uh, high school football. And uh, we would go out in, in the middle of August and for spring, not spring really, but fall training. It was to get the team ready for, for the season, which began roughly... Oh, the 15th of September, something like that. And we would go out like uh, the 1st of August. Well, it was during that period that I grew to hate August. Well, I don't know whether you've ever done 150 push-ups in a 100-degree temperature wearing shoulder pads. You tend to not look upon August with favor. Used to hate August coming along, and also you ached. Oh my God! Oh, we would, we would, we would, we would do laps, and we would do push-ups, and we would do squat and bends. We would do the famous bicycle rock. That's a goodie. You know how that one's done, don't you? Lay flat on your stomach, and you rock back and forth like a rocker, back and forth, back and forth. Of course, remember, we're not doing it for fun and games like your average jogger. We are wearing uh, pads. We are wearing the works. Well, uh, it gets to be very boring. Boredom. Heat. Yelling. I always had uh, splinters under my fingernails. See, because these are the little things you pick up playing football. I always had constant scabs here and there and everywhere. Constant things that ached and little things that hurt. And... Uh, and you know, and you, you you couldn't eat the stuff that everybody else was eating. You know, you'd go down. They would get out of uh, uh, the local equivalent of McDonald's, and everybody would be having the 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 Big Mac. You know, and you'd say, "Well, give me." Uh... <laughs> so you know, it's not good. Okay, but then playing was different. 
And so you played and played, and all the season went by, and it would rain, and it would get hot, and it would rain, it would get cold. And then as the season progressed, it got fantastically cold. I can remember playing games of football in 5, 10, 15 degree below zero temperatures with the wind, because this is Green Bay country I'm talking about. This is not Shea Stadium. The wind howling out of the north. And the ground so frozen that when you ran over it, you could actually hear your football shoes going dunk, 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 dunk. You were like running on a, on a billiard table. And when you landed on it, you were landing on a billiard table. It was mean. So time would go by. And finally we would play our last game around Thanksgiving. I have seen it so cold and so much snow and ice that they had to clear the field. And when you would run out of bounds, you would run into a three-foot, five-foot drift sometimes. <laughs> you know, oh, God, I hated that. Well, then the winter set in. Ice and snow, mean. And it would come screaming out of the north every night. And uh, the ice would never go. The gray skies. I guess that's another thing you people don't know about out here. But uh, in very large parts of the Middle West, they do not see the sky from roughly, oh, October to possibly April. They see no blue sky at all. It's just one big solid gray cover over it. That's called the winter cover, by the way, is what it's called. Wind blowing. Once in a while we would have a day where we did see the sun, and then it would drop to 25 below. The minute the sky gets clear, by the way, it gets infinitely colder because the sky, that big flat gray, keeps the sun, you know, keeps the... The, the heat in, and then it would come. You ready over there? It would come. March, early March. There is no feeling, friends, like going out on a ball field. The first spring days, and smelling that, that grass growing and hearing the sound of somebody hitting fungo fly balls, just that pop of the ball. And you just trot around out in the outfield and smell the grass. Once in a while, you chase a long fly. It doesn't hurt like football. It's a whole different set of muscles coming to play. And then you begin to throw those short throws into second base, getting your arm in shape. And then you take your turn at bat. You start fouling off a few taking those swings at a batting practice pitcher that's throwing him in easy because he's getting his arm ready, too. Just no time like those first early spring days on a ball field. And anybody who has never experienced it will never understand baseball. It's grass. It's a new season. It's the smell of the river in the distance and the swamp and the sound of the frogs. That's baseball, early spring. My favorite time of the year. Very early spring. You may even find a little ice under the grandstand here and there. Yeah, and you wear a sweatshirt to warm up. Yeah. And that, that, that hurt in the palm. You haven't caught a ball all year and your palm hurts from getting those first few hard throws and it swells 
Your glove has that smell of not being used all winter. You rub oil into it. It's a fantastic feeling. Right, kid? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you mean you've never smelled the smell of a well-broken-in outfielder's glove? You know, outfielder's gloves, incidentally, smell different. have a different smell entirely from an infielder's mitt. You know why, don't you? Well, you don't. They're held differently. <laughs> you think they just put the glove on like you put on your gloves? Are you kidding? You ever watch the first baseman put his glove on? That's right. Catcher's mitt has a smell like no other mitt. What kind of a glove does a pitcher use? Does he use a glove that's similar to uh, an outfielder? Or does he use a glove similar to an infielder? You know that the third baseman's glove is different from a shortstop's glove. Oh, yes. Indeed. Joe Morgan, for example, uh, the second baseman of the Reds, uses a very small glove. He's a throwback to earlier great uh, infielders like, oh, Honus Wagner, where he uses a small glove. Gives him a certain kind of Joe Morgan mobility. Other other uh, players use a, a much larger glove. The first baseman's glove, by the way, is uh, closer in uh, philosophy to a catcher's mitt. It does not have fingers to begin with. If you don't know anything about that, it's a, it's a scooping glove. And uh, now what about an outfielder? What kind of a glove does he use? No, 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 no. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.